For those who don't know, the first five books of the Bible, in English they're called the Law, in Hebrew they are called the Torah, and they comprise the teaching and instruction given to Israel at Mount Sinai. It's Genesis through Deuteronomy, and for thousands of years, we have divided the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, into 54 weekly sections that we read in the synagogue every week and we study. So starting tonight at sundown, you'll begin reading and studying next week's Torah portion, which is Kitavo, which starts in Deuteronomy chapter 26. So start reading that, start looking over that, beginning tonight at sundown. There are, over by Josh on, on the wall, next to that wooden box, there are cards over there that have the Torah portion schedules listed out on them. Grab one of those, they're free. I just ordered 200 more for next year's Torah cycle. Um, put them in your Bible, save them as a bookmarker. They have the Torah, the prophets, and the New Testament portions in that card that you can read. And you can know we follow that almost to the T. So it's like a really big ancient community Bible reading program that we follow. But this week's Torah portion is found in Deuteronomy, Chapter 21, and it starts in verse 10. And each Torah portion gets its name from the first few words in that Torah portion. So, for instance, if you look at Deuteronomy 21.10, it says, when you go out, is the first few words. So, this week's Torah portion is named, when you go out. But in Hebrew, if I translate into Hebrew, it's, ki teitze, when you teitze, okay? Notice it doesn't say, if you take say. It says, when you take say. When you go to war. The people of Israel have been at war for thousands of years, haven't they? Yes. And we, as the bride of Messiah, and people and children of God, we are grafted into that warfare. Now, Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against heavenly principalities, right? The unseen realm. So, you are at war. And one of the greatest tactics of our enemy is to lull you into thinking that you're not in warfare. And you are. Just have children, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. Or get married, you'll know there's warfare, right? And you're at war with your flesh and your, your, your carnal mind, aren't you? Well, this week's Torah portion, like I said, starts in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 10. This week's Torah portion Depending on who is counting and how they count, it has anywhere between 72 to 74 commandments in it. There's a lot. This, this week's Torah portion, it feels to me like, like there, was, um, there was a lot of commandments that God wanted to, to give to Moses. And he's like, wait, I left these ones, I left these ones out. And, and it's all, it feels like, like they're, they're kind of quickly like, here, let's, let's make all this case law. So that you have all the commandments that you need to have to live justly in the land that I'm about to put you in. And so these seem random, don't they? How many of you read this week's Torah yeah, portion? Yeah. They seem kind of all over the place, like they jump around everywhere. But they all have one common theme. And I was listening to a, one, of my, one of my great teachers and mentors is Grant Luton, at Beth Tikkun Messianic Congregation. And he said they do all have one thing in common. And here, here's what it is. They all deal with respect for fellow human beings. How to respect and live in harmony with another human and, and someone in your community with. So there's about 31 topics that's, that's covered here. 
But they all, like I said, have that common denominator of relating to your fellow human. Last year, I think it was, when was this? 2019, I taught on this Torah portion and specifically looked at Deuteronomy chapter 24 and talked about how Deuteronomy 24 says that if a man marries a woman and that woman commits adultery and the man divorces that woman, he cannot remarry her. Well, guess what? Israel was married to God in covenant with God. Israel committed adultery. Per Jeremiah chapter 3, Israel was divorced. But then in Jeremiah 31, God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, how can he do that? He can't violate his own word per Deuteronomy chapter 24. Well, the answer, you can go back and listen to the teaching there. Basically, there needs to be a legal loophole. And I talk about what that legal loophole is, how God can remarry Israel. But you can do that. That was from two years ago. This week's tour portion to me reminds me of a farmer's almanac a little bit. How many of you ever picked up a farmer's almanac like at a bookstore like Barnes and Noble and everything? But very few of you have picked up the farmer's almanac and you said, oh, this is really applicable to my life right now. <laughs> like I, I don't go to Barnes and Noble and pick up a farmer's almanac and say, oh, I need to figure out when I need to plant my beans this year. Some people do. Some people do. Yeah, absolutely. Good for you. You know, I, but I don't, I don't look at it and be like, oh, I need to figure out when the new moon is in November so I know when to harvest my okra. Or, I don't know when to harvest okra. Right? You don't look at the farmer's almanac. You pick it up and you want to look at it because it's kind of like a novelty thing, isn't it? And I think sometimes we have a tendency to look at the Torah of God. Like what, what Yeshua says, I have not come to abolish, but I come to fulfill. Yes. We look at that like a farmer's almanac. And we're like, oh, it's kind of a, it's a cute novelty thing. But not a whole lot of that applies to me in my life and my situation in the 21st century living in Dothan, Alabama. Yeah, God forbid. Yeshua says that whoever disobeys even the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now this week's Torah portion, guess what? It has the least of the commandments in it. Does anyone know what the least commandment is? Yeah. If you come upon a nest, mm -hmm. yes, then you're allowed to eat Yeah, you can eat the eggs that the bird is sitting on, but you cannot eat the mother because it's about preservation of life. Don't let the mother see you take the eggs. Well, that, the rabbis have said that that is the least important commandment. Now, do we obey that commandment? Yeah, Yeshua says even the least of the commandments, right? Whoever disobeys even the least of these commandments and so teaches be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's the least commandment. What is the greatest commandment? Yeshua gives us the answer to that too. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your strength. Anything in between. If, it, if we can obey it, we do our best to obey it. If it applies to us, we do our best to obey it. Now, that's a lot of work to go through and figure out what aspects of the Torah apply to me. Because I want, I want to honor my king, right? It's not because it earns our salvation. God forbid. Our salvation is a free gift. But because he has saved us, we obey all right, I want to turn your attention to, speaking of Farmer's Almanac, I want to turn your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Can you guys turn there if you have a Bible? Deuteronomy 24, 16. 24, 16. And you guys know that this was originally written in the Hebrew language. And we don't fight over translations here. We just learn the original language and read the best of our ability. But it says here, Lo yomtu 
אבות על בנים, ובנים לא יומתו על אבות, איש בחטאו יומתו. In other words, the, the uh, fathers should not die for the sons, nor shall the sons die, yumtu right there, yumtu, for the fathers. Each man, ish becheto, each man has to yumatu uh, for his chata, his sin. Each man has to die for his own sin. Mm. It's interesting. I, I have had anti-missionaries. Now, an anti-missionary is a person who tries to refute the gospel. They can come in the form of orthodox rabbis. They can come in the form of atheists. But most, if they take on the title anti-missionary, they're an orthodox uh, Jewish person or a rabbi who they're specifically trained to undermine your belief in Yeshua as Messiah. And they're very good at what they do. I've had them present this to me. How can Jesus, how can Yeshua die for your sins? Right there in the Torah, it says that every man must die for his own sin. It's a good point. Here, let me give you, let me give you an example of, hopefully this uh, plays. This is a, a Chabad rabbi by the name of Goodman Locks. Okay? Let's see if it'll play here. Let's see if we got volume. The other day I was walking out of the old city here in Yushalayim to Jaffa Gate. And there were four or five American tourists. They were not Jews. They were Christians. And they were handing out brochures to Jews trying to convert the Jews to their religion. Why don't Jews want to convert to Christianity? For 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to convert us. And we've refused. They've even expelled us from their countries if we didn't convert. They threatened to kill us if we wouldn't convert. But Jews did not want to convert to become Christians. Why? What's so wrong with their religion? They point into the Bible many places and say, you see, this is pointing to them. But what does the Bible really say? What is the main point of their religion? A Jewish man was killed, hanging on a cross, hanging on a pole. And because of his death, they believe their sins are forgiven. But what does the Torah say? The Torah clearly says, no man will die for another man's sins. The fathers will not die for the sins of the sons, and the sons will not die for the sins of the fathers. Every man will die for his own sins. You see here the Western Wall, by the entrance to the men's side, there's a guard standing there. His job is to see to the women go to the women's side. The men go to the men's side. Men are to cover the heads with a covering that's provided there. And if anybody is wearing a cross, we're going to stop there because he kind of gets on the tangent a little bit. But yeah, he raises a good point that everyone's supposed to die for their own sin. Now, if you're weak in your faith, if you're weak in what we call apologetics and defending what you believe, that could really kind of throw, throw you for a loop, couldn't it? Some of you right now, you're like, whoa, what's Gabe, what's, where's Gabe going with this? <laughs> you know, that happened to me too. Well, I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. Well, today I'm going to put a tool in your tool belt. Yay. It's going to teach you how to refute what that man just said. Because he's taking it way out of context. You ready? Well, look, here's some verses. Christ died for our sins. 
So according to what he just said, yeah, that's that's craziness, right? That's, that doesn't make sense. It's not, it doesn't jive with the Torah. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. Messiah gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, Galatians 1.4. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, book of John. All these verses, according to him, are impossible, according to his rendering of Deuteronomy chapter 24. What do we do with that? Because that is the bedrock of our faith, is it not? That our sins have been taken and put on Messiah. He bore our grief, our sin, our transgression. So what do we do when the Torah says in Deuteronomy 24 that each man is to die for his own sin? Is there a way to reconcile it? Well, I want to submit to you that Rabbi Goodman Locks, with all due respect, is taking this verse grossly out of context and is denying some of the most basic tenets of his own faith. And he says in the description of that video, you can't see the description, but he says... Um, Orthodox rabbi destroys Christianity in two minutes. The irony is that he's undermining his own faith in two minutes. And I'm going to prove it to you. Here. Here's the Babylonian Talmud. No, this is the Jerusalem Talmud. As the day of atonement atones over Israel, so too does the death of a righteous one atone over Israel. His own great rabbis in the Talmud, the ancient rabbinic texts, say that a righteous man atones for Israel. Let me give you another one. Rabbi Ami said, why was the Torah portion that describes the death of Miriam juxtaposed to the portion dealing with the red heifer? To tell you that just as the red heifer atones for sin, so too the death of a righteous atones for sin. Rabbi Elazar said, why was the Torah portion that describes the death of Aaron juxtaposed to the portion discussing the priestly garments? This teaches that just as the priestly garments atone for sin, so too the death of a righteous one atones for sin. So Rabbi Goodman Locks, he's a Chabad rabbi, right? He's a big proponent of the Chabad movement, if you're not familiar with that. It's a, it's a big um, evangelistic movement that tries to get Jews to be observant, to be religious, okay? And they have centers all around the world, and they meet in these homes, and it like serves as like a synagogue, but a learning center called a Chabad house. And this movement is, is, has stretched the globe, okay? And here, one of the spokespeople of that movement that's actually based in Israel, this spokesman is based in Israel, he wrote a book, and it's a really handy book, and he calls it The Days of Messiah, okay? So let's back up. Rabbi Goodman Locks is a Chabad rabbi, proponent of the Chabad Jewish movement, and the, the Israeli spokesman of the Chabad movement wrote a book called The Days of Messiah. And in this book, he says, what is the purpose of the sacrifices? They affect atonement. So too does the death of a righteous person affect atonement. Wait, this is Rashi. This is Rashi on Numbers 20, actually. I got out of order. This is Rashi, one of the greatest rabbinic commentators on the Torah. Lived during the medieval times. He says the same thing. Here is our man, Menachem Brod, the Israeli spokesperson for the Chabad movement. He says, through his sufferings, the Messiah atones for his generation and enables every Jew to receive redemption. As it says, he's quoting Isaiah, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So there's an inconsistency here. 
So if I had Rabbi Goodman locks and I showed him all of these passages, he would have to admit that he's looking at Deuteronomy 24, not like his contemporaries and the ancient rabbis have looked at Deuteronomy 24. He is misinterpreting it. He is doing what we call post-Messianic adaptation and interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Because at its very core, Judaism is all about substitutionary atonement. Let's look at Isaiah 53. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities, their sin. Note the second half of verse 12. He poured out himself unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So let's back up. This Menachem Brod, who wrote the book, The Days of Messiah, says that Isaiah 53 is talking about the Messiah. He's, he's making that connection. Do you agree? Do you follow with me? He's saying, as it says, surely he has borne our griefs. Right there. He's saying that's about the Messiah. And then I go to Isaiah 3 and I read more and I say he's bearing the sin of many. But Deuteronomy 24 says that a man must die for his own sin. So there's either a misinterpretation on my part, on Gutman Locke's part, or the Bible contradicts itself. I'm going to go with the former. John 10 says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my own life. That's key right there. Only to take it up again. No one is taking it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. And authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. That's key to understanding the role of Yeshua dying. Did anyone make, did anyone take Yeshua and say, you have to die for the sins of Israel? No. He laid it down willingly. He gave himself substitutionary, like, like I'm, I'm going to take this for you. And I see our first question for the day. A hand back there. Michael. Yeah. Yeah, I sat next to a plane coming back from Tel Aviv. Um, I sat in between two Orthodox men who were part of the Chabad movement. And we had a great discussion about Isaiah 53. And they said, yeah, Isaiah 53 is definitely about the Messiah, the suffering servant Messiah. It's definitely about the Messiah. And they believed that their Rebbe, Menachem Schneerson, is that Messiah. They believed he is Mashiach, that he suffered and died in the 90s, and that he will rise again. You know, they were on an airplane flying to, where was it, uh, Crown Heights, New York, yeah. to the Chabad headquarters in Crown Heights, New York, on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, to be, hopefully, one of the first people to see Menachem Schneerson resurrect from the dead. And the plane was about 80 to 85% Orthodox Chabad families that were doing just that. Every single year, flying to Crown Heights, New York, to hopefully be the first people to witness their rabbi resurrecting from the dead. Because they read Isaiah 53 and they know that's about Messiah. Except they just don't know about Yeshua of Nazareth. 
they've been told things about Jesus of Nazareth and they've seen pictures of him and depictions of him that are wrong, like Jeremy was so succinctly saying last week. They've been giving a misrepresentation of the role of Yeshua. That he's not kosher. He's the false prophet of Deuteronomy 13, the way that, let's say, the, the Roman Catholic Church presents him. That cannot, that is not a kosher Messiah according to the Jewish people. But we're, we're trying to correct that, are we not? Yes, I see a second hand. So many Jewish people interpret Isaiah 53 as the nation of Israel and mm -hmm. not as a personal suffering servant Messiah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And that's. Rabbis too. Yeah. Yeah, that's ignoring the historical rabbinic view of Isaiah 53 is that it pertains to Messiah. So we have a little bit of understanding here that Deuteronomy 24 is talking about if Noah were to do something like a grievous crime and then Noah dips out and he, he leaves town and he cannot be found. The judicial system cannot come to me and say, now you have to pay the price for his sin. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is talking about. Now, I could step in and I would say, okay, I'm going to pay his fine. I'm going to substitute myself for him. I'm going to do the time. I'm going to pay the fine. I'm going to do community service for, the, for his sake. But a good judicial system cannot take me and make me pay for his crime. I am an independent, unless I was complicit in that crime. But if I was completely ignorant of what was going on, completely innocent, they cannot pin that on me in the punishment. Does that make sense? And that's what Deuteronomy 24 is talking about. Here's from the pulpit commentary. Among heathen nations, it was common for a whole family to be involved in the penalty incurred by the head of the family and to be put to death along with him. Though God, in, in the exercise of his absolute sovereignty, might visit the sins of the parent upon the children, earthly judges were not to assume this position of power. Right? Here's from uh, David's biblical commentary in the Old Testament. This command was important to prevent an unwarrantable and abusive application of the law, which is manifest in the movements of divine justice to the criminal jurisprudence of the land. Since it was a common thing among the heathen nations, like the Persians, the Macedonians, and others, for the children and families of criminals to also be put to death. In other words, God is saying, you know what, I want you to rethink the justice system that you currently understand. When someone messes up and sins, they alone are to pay for that, not their family. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is talking about. And the fact that Rabbi Goodman Locks is taking that so far out of context, to me, is, is frankly embarrassing for his sake. The target Jonathan says... Fathers should not be put to death. Now, the Targum is an ancient Aramaic translation of the Bible. Okay? So it gives us a little bit more clues, a little bit more. It's kind of like reading the ancient message Bible. Does that make sense? Um, a little bit extrapolates on, on some, some ideas. Fathers should not be put to death, neither by the testimony nor for the sins of the children. And children should not be put to death, neither by the testimony nor for the sins of the fathers. But every man should be put to death for his own sin by proper witness. So in other words... The Targum Jonathan is saying Deuteronomy 24 is about the judicial system. It's not about the role of Messiah. Okay? Yeah, yeah question. I, they practice that in North Korea now. One family member can mess up and the whole family goes to prison. Yes. But 
Yeah, that brings a good point. Thank you. North Korea, if you flee the country, you do so at the fear that your whole family is going to be sent to a labor camp. That is what Deuteronomy 4 is talking about and addressing here. You are not to do that. All right? Deuteronomy 24.16, in other words, is a prohibition on anger-fueled vigilante justice. It is not a prohibition on substitutionary atonement, as Goodman Locks is supposing. You ever seen that Western movie, you know, and they're like, you know, your brother killed my father, I'm going to get your whole family, and they chase him down right, and they hang him up. That's Deuteronomy 24 saying, don't do that. Be people of justice, of jurisprudence. You know, there was a story we were telling my sons, a very sad story, we were telling my sons this past week. And the reason why I came up is because I went to the Ark Encounter uh, last week, and it was full of Amish families. And, um, you know, our first instinct sometimes is to look at people of extreme sects of Christianity and to ridicule them or to be like, uh, you know, they don't really know their Bible or they, they take things to the extreme. They're doing this wrong. They're doing that wrong. And I brought that up at the table, the dining room table, and, and a criticism came up of the Amish community. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa no, we're not going to criticize the Amish community. Let me tell you a story. This happened in 2006, was it? I think it was 2006. A maniac went into a preschool and viciously murdered all the children in his preschool. cold blood and the Amish community if they were acting in their carnal minds they could all saddle up ride to that man's and, and the man was gunned down by police by the way he's dead the, the, the murderer is dead they could they could go to that family's house and say now you're gonna pay we've got a bunch of dead children on our hands our kids are not coming home from school today because of your, your husband or your father. You're going to pay for it. But what did the Amish community do? You guys remember this story? Yeah, I saw it on They started a fundraiser for that man's children so that they would have money to live on and then money to go to school. Wow. I do. They went to the, the wife's home, the widow's home, and they said, we know that you're going to feel like you need to distance yourself from our community. Don't do it. You're part of us. We'll help take care of you. Wow. I don't have any room to criticize the Amish community because I don't know that I could do that. And I think that's the kind of forgiveness that Yeshua calls us to in those moments, is that every man has to pay for his own sin. It's Deuteronomy 24. You live by the sword, you die by it. And that murderer died that day. Doesn't mean that his family is guilty of that crime. So the Amish community interpreted Deuteronomy 24 very correctly. And they went to that family's home and they said, we'll take care of you because you did not do that. And now you need a father and now you need a husband. And we see that need and we want to fill it. Man. And here we are, 14, 15 years later, Dothan, Alabama, talking about that story still. That's what true 
Yeshua-like forgiveness does is that it reverberates through time and through geography to where now we're all sitting around and praising that act of mercy and kindness and forgiveness. So let's reread these verses now with that in light. Christ died for our sins. Not for his own, for ours. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Messiah gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you read those with different eyes now? you read Deuteronomy 24 with different eyes? Now, the irony of Rabbi Locke's and his interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 is not lost on me, hopefully not on you. But atonement accomplished by the righteous or substitutionary atonement on behalf of many is a theme that is central to Judaism, it's central to the Torah, and the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Think about it, the whole story of the Bible is about an innocent taking the sin of the sinful. I mean, from the very first pages of Genesis, we see innocent animals having to die to clothe Adam and Eve. Substitutionary atonement. Right? By misinterpreting Deuteronomy 24 the way he did, he is not only failing to undermine Christianity, but ironically, he's undermining and contradicting his own faith and many of its greatest rabbis. So do you feel that tool in your tool belt now? It's there. So if someone comes at you with Deuteronomy 24, 16 and says, how can Jesus take your sins away? The Torah says that no one can do that. You're like, uh-uh. Takeaway number one, I'm going to give you three of these. Trust that the Jewish theologians and writers of the New Testament knew their Torah and the prophets. They knew and deeply understood the role of the Messiah and then wrote about it as they witnessed that role being fulfilled in Yeshua of Nazareth. Okay? Trust them. Takeaway number two, don't allow yourself to be intimidated by someone who speaks with dogmatic certainty or condescension on a subject when you know Based on your own study of scripture, that's wrong. It doesn't matter how mean or bullish they sound. If they're wrong, they're wrong. It doesn't matter how intelligent they sound. If they're wrong, they're wrong. Trust your study of scripture. Trust the word of God. Takeaway number three. Be careful in your interpretation of scripture. Be very careful. Don't try to interpret the Torah in a vacuum. And don't fill that vacuum with your own personal bias. Okay? There was a lot that's going on in the Near Eastern world when the Torah was given. A lot of messed up ways of, of executing justice. A lot of, a lot of abuse of women. A, a, a lot of, a lot of um, taking of spoils from war. A lot of mistreatment of servants and slaves. A lot of this is going on. A lot of idolatry and pagan idol worship going on. The Torah is coming in in the midst of all that and saying, cut it out, do it this way. You're to be like a light that is shining on a hill that cannot be hidden. I'm gonna put you on the trophy case, Israel, my people, and you're to live out my righteous statutes so that other people will look at you and say, what God do they have that gives them such righteous laws and decrees? And they'll ask about me. Yeah. A lot of these abuses are taking place today. Yep. Middle East, especially under the radical Islam, yeah. which is a false god. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's nothing new under the sun that's so intensive. So this is the time we set aside for questions and answers. If you have a question or a comment you'd like to add, now is your chance. Did I see hand, Jen? Could you maybe make the argument that that Rabbi Locke's guy knows this and is intentionally twisting yes. it in order to yes. discredit their religion or try to discredit He asked the question, is it possible Rabbi Locke's knows this, that he's taking out of context and is misinterpreting it. Um, I don't know his heart. I don't know that. But I do know that there are uh, Jews in Israel coming to faith in Messiah by the hordes right now. And that freaks them out. And uh, it could be. I don't know. Just don't know. Anything else? Patrick. Yeah, read it. Yeah. Where are you at? So other people can go there. Romans eleven twenty five. Yeah, that's a really good point. That that maybe Goodman Locks is not misinterpreting it, but just he's walking in the partial hardening that Paul describes of his people. Perhaps. Your average Jew is not going to accept anything from the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Anything else? Yeah. Philippians 2 last week. <laughs> it's a good chapter. Yeah. 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 Y
Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and um, that's a, that's a dif- difficult subject for our three-pound brains to wrap, wrap itself around. <laughs> is the omnipresence of God, and how John one says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and then the Word took on flesh and dwelt among men." And can Gabe Rutledge fathom that? Absolutely not. But I know that he is all-powerful, omniscient, and all-knowing. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think to, to reconcile that might take years, it might take a lifetime, or it might be something you ask him in the kingdom. Um, but God, I know, is outside of space and time. And if he can create me from the dust of the earth uh, and breathe life into me, then I have to trust that he can manifest himself in a way that he can clothe himself in flesh and walk among us um, and, and can teach us his, his ways through a, a, an example that we can all witness. And then, yeah, he can get down from his throne and he can get up on a cross and be a sacrifice for us to take away our sin. And, um, yeah, that's something that's, that's Paul seemed to have a good grasp on. <laughs> in 2 Timothy 3.16, Peter says... Paul writes some things that are difficult to understand. And uh, that is difficult to understand. But if we if we deny that Yeshua is God clothed in flesh, then we have to throw out the New Testament. There are so many claims of Yeshua's divinity in the New Testament that all his apostles, Paul, his statements in the gospel itself seem to indicate that he is... He, he is divine. I mean, look at just John chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am. Um, yeah, we, we would just have to toss the whole thing out. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. If 
generations before us is this uh, a scripture that encourages us to not ask the next generation to pay for that yeah to require you know, to expect the next generation to live up to what the promises of their fathers kind of like that let each generation yeah so what she's asking is a really good topic uh the idea of uh let's say uh my ancestors owned slaves in america do I, according to Deuteronomy 24, am I exempt from paying any sort of reparation or doing sort of like, sort of, and the answer I would say is yes. Um, first of all, uh, as far as I know, my, all my ancestors were poor rice farmers in Arkansas. But no, there, it's a very real question, a very important question. You can take the same question and apply it to the Native American situation that happened, some of the most horrible atrocities and injustices in our history. Um, were committed against tribes of Native Americans in North America. And I think to, to and if we were to disobey Deuteronomy 24, 16 and say, hey, 150 years ago, your people did this to my tribe, you have to pay for it. Do you think that's gonna create more harmony or less harmony? Do you think that's gonna create more justice or more injustice? Do you think that's gonna create paranoia or unity? And the answer is it's gonna create paranoia and division and unity and it's gonna exacerbate the wounds that have been there for so long and will continue to be there now. You just opened a wound and you just sprinkled salt in it, basically. And, and I think one of the best things we can do is teach humans, teach children, teach school children that no matter your race, no matter your hair color, how tall you are, whatever, you are made in the image of God. And because of that, I have to lay my life down for you. And let's... We are a beautiful kaleidoscope of skin colors, but you know when I when I when I look at someone of different skin color, I don't automatically say oh different different race. I need to communicate different. I look at them. I just see man, made the image of my God. Man, look how creative he is. Right. That's the kind of that's the mentality I believe will bring true healing and unity and justice into places where that needs to be restored. Does that make sense? I hope that answers the question. Correct. Yeah. says um, to you Gentiles, you know, he wants, he wants, you Gentiles provoke my brother into jealousy. How do you do that, you know? And one of the things we do to do that is Gentiles doing the things that Jews do. <laughs> and it's just simple as that. For instance, uh, if I could tell this story, um, my in-laws own a plant nursery, and they closed for the first day of some holiday, some, some um, maybe like Sukkot, or I don't remember what holiday it was. That was a Sabbath. Or maybe Yom Kippur. The day after Passover. They closed because the Torah says, you know, treat it as a Sabbath. Don't work on this day. So they close. Well, this Jewish man comes up wanting to buy plants from them. And he's a landscaper or something, or he owns another smaller nursery. And uh, my brother-in-law meets him at the gate of the property and says, oh, no, we're closed for the observance of Passover. And the guy's like, I didn't know your family was Jewish. He's like, no, we're not. And he's like, whoa, you guys are better Jews than I am, you know? And that's kind of the essence of, like, we do the things that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob tells us to do as, as a way of saying, you know, he, this, is, this, is a, this is a righteous thing to do. Let's do this. And the byproduct of that 
is that Paul's brethren will say, wait a second, you're doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing, and you're doing them better than me. I want to do this as well, you know? Where did you learn this, you know? And it creates this, this like, provokes them to jealousy. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic, and I've experienced that before. Um, but yeah, any other questions or comments? Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for your great comments. I'll be hanging out here. If you have any more questions or comments you want to ask me, uh, I love those kinds of things. And um, if the worship team wants to come up, we're going to do uh, the ironic benediction here after Kiddush. But let's say the blessing of the fruit of the vine.